And our next speaker this afternoon is Matthew Feinstein from Northwestern University, a local uh, expert here who is going to talk to us about managing cardiovascular disease in people with HIV. As he so kindly said, he doesn't do the management, he gives recommendations. So as a cardiologist, he's going to tell you his thoughts about how to do this. Thanks, Connie. And I do the management, but I don't do the ART management, I should say. So um, thanks, everyone, for being here. I'm excited to talk about this, and I definitely intend to leave some time for the Q&A because I think especially with Reprieve, there are a lot of Qs, and hopefully I'll have some As for it. Um, no relationships to disclose. So really, I'm going to take you through first the scope and manifestations and presentations of cardiovascular disease. Some of this will be review, some of it won't be, be depending on your level of familiarity. Um, then I'm going to talk briefly about mechanisms because I think that's actually really necessary to inform how we approach management. And then just talk practically speaking about some approaches to management. And again, this is just a more detailed, it really the what, why, and how of cardiovascular disease in HIV. And I should say, along with the how is when and in whom you would do uh, certain, uh, certain management choices. So first, we'll start with a question, and that is, how does the risk for heart attack compare for people with HIV versus people without HIV? I think this now goes to Slido. All right, short enough question. We can, let's see what people said. Yeah, uh, you know, mm, interesting. So as you'll see based on some of the data, it's actually really the top one is, you know, most studies actually show about a 50 to 100% higher risk, so 1.5 to two-fold higher risk for, uh, for MI among people with HIV. But we'll get into that. So first, again, I wanna just take a step back and think about what are cardiovascular diseases because when we say cardiovascular diseases, it's pretty broad. We're talking about all of the heart and vasculature. And the ways that you can treat and prevent one manifestation of cardiovascular disease may differ considerably than how you would approach another. So um, at first, I'm just gonna talk about coronary artery disease and myocardial infarction, right? Myocardial infarction is heart attack. Um, and this is really what we're thinking about for the most part when we're talking about cholesterol, clotting, et cetera. So it's really atherothrombosis. And just breaking it down into those words, athero, it's arterial plaque. It accumulates in your arteries because you've got a bunch of cholesterol and inflammatory material that accumulates underneath the endothelium, so within the artery lining. And again, key features here are lipid or cholesterol, and then you have an inflammatory response to that lipid, which kind of acts as a neoantigen that your body mounts an inflammatory response against. There's also the component of an activated endothelium, meaning the lining of the arteries that becomes particularly inflammatory. And this can especially be the case during hemodynamic stressors. And so by that, I mean really high blood pressure or something that puts more stress on the lining of that artery. So that's the athero part. And then thrombosis is clot. And so what happens is when this lining of the heart artery or the artery really anywhere in your body, but it's particularly common in the heart, when it gets disrupted or inflamed, you can start spilling the contents of the plaque into the lumen of the artery, into just kind of the, where all the flow in the pipe happens. And what happens there is your body says, hey, this is 
something new, unusual, and I want to stop it. So unfortunately, that means there's often a hypercoagulable response where you get a bunch of clotting factors coming in and trying to clot that up. And so when I think about a heart attack, I generally think about a clot that forms on top of an unstable plaque. So that's the thrombosis on top of the athero. And the end result, you know, if the clot's big enough and if it's fully blocking a heart artery, you are completely limiting flow somewhere in the heart, and that leads to a heart attack where you get heart muscle death because you're not getting blood or oxygen delivery past that, past that spot. So what do we know epidemiologically? Um, and this is you know, why I'm here talking to everyone, is because people with HIV have one and a half to two-fold higher risk for heart attack than people without HIV. This has been shown in several cohorts. Um, I won't belabor it too much because, unfortunately, epidemiological slides, while they're very important, tend to, uh, tend to bore audiences if you stay too long on them. But in this case, this is from several different cohorts where we've seen, this is from the partners trial, and this was kind of in the earlier era, um, where they looked at people with HIV in blue, people without HIV in green, and you're just comparing MI rates or heart attack rates and seeing consistently higher rates of MI among people with HIV. That has subsequently been shown in the veterans aging cohort study, a uh, much larger population, although predominantly cisgender men. Um, but again, uh, really across the board, you see higher relative risks for heart attack by about one and a half to twofold. And importantly, in really all of these studies and ones that have come out since, you see a biological gradient, right? And, and by that I mean the worse your HIV control and or the worse your immune progression, meaning more viremia and or lower CD4 count, the higher your risks for myocardial infarction or heart attack. So now I'm gonna move over to heart failure a little bit. Um, and heart failure is a little more challenging. We know a little bit less about it from a precise mechanistic and management standpoint because it's a little bit more of a grab bag and a final common pathway of various cardiovascular insults. So heart failure in general, it's a clinical syndrome. And I wanna highlight that because just having an abnormal echocardiogram in someone who's completely asymptomatic, runs marathons or even just runs miles, feels fine, they don't have heart failure. They kind of have a substrate that can lead to heart failure. But heart failure is fundamentally a clinical syndrome, shortness of breath, lower extremity edema, and it's, it's arising from a combination of impaired heart function and or inadequate relaxation of the heart, but also a number of extra cardiac manifestations like sympathetic activation, et cetera. But the bottom line is it results in clinical congestion, too much fluid on board. And again, it's highly heterogeneous, tons of potential causes of heart failure. Um, what we know, and this is a little bit more recent, we've known about the HIV and myocardial infarction story for a while, but only more recently in, in the modern era have we gotten more large-scale data on heart failure and HIV. And this is a study we did here at Northwestern where we actually manually and painfully went through, um, went through and adjudicated the heart failure events to ensure, uh, to ensure what was actually coded as heart failure, truly was heart failure. And what we saw is people with HIV had about a two-fold higher risk for heart failure compared with people without HIV. All of these are multivariable adjusted for essentially any clinical covariate that, that one could imagine would be capturable. And again, here you see a biologic gradient. Higher viral load, lower CD4 count, higher risk for heart failure. This was also shown in the Veterans Aging Cohort Study. Again, in this case, they found more like a 1.5, 1.6-fold higher risk for heart failure for people with HIV compared with people without HIV. And then finally, arrhythmias. This is even a more unknown area, I would say, particularly when we talk about atrial fibrillation. So just as a brief primer, 
Arrhythmias can arrive from the upper chambers of the heart, the atria, those little globular-looking things, or they can arise from the lower chambers of the heart, the ventricles, which are really the main pump chambers. Generally speaking, the arrhythmias arriving from the upper chambers of the heart are less likely to be fatal and are more benign. I mean, they are, they are still clinically relevant, but again, less likely to be fatal because you basically, there's something called the AV node that's essentially a stop sign between the upper chambers of the heart and the lower chambers of the heart. So if someone has atrial fibrillation and the upper chambers of their heart are trying to go 400 beats per minute, the stop sign between the upper and lower chambers is going to say, hey, we can, you know, hold on, we can only go about 80 to 120 beats per minute, right? And our hearts can generally handle that. Now, the ventricles, very different story, because they're below that stop sign. So if there's an arrhythmia in the ventricles of the heart that's trying to go 200, 300 beats per minute, there's not a stop sign there that's going to stop it. And so if you get into that, that's where you get into ventricular fibrillation. The heart doesn't have enough time to fill. You can't pump out enough blood. You lose your pulse, you die. Right, so, so um, the difference between atrial arrhythmias and ventricular ones from a clinical standpoint is, is really substantial. Um, for atrial fibrillation, it's interesting. There's conflicting data uh, whether or not people with HIV actually do have higher risk for atrial fibrillation than people without HIV. A lot of this depends on the specific cohort. A lot of it depends on the control population. None of these studies comparing people with HIV to controls are perfect. So, so there's always going to be nuances. And overall, I think we still don't know. People with HIV may have slightly increased risk for atrial fibrillation or they may not. But what we do know is people with HIV have higher risk for sudden cardiac death than people without HIV uh, by a substantial margin. So this was a really nicely done study out of UCSF where they actually um, reviewed autopsies individually, had a, had a really comprehensive interface with the San Francisco medical examiner. And what they ended up finding is uh, both presumed and confirmed sudden cardiac death was about twofold more common for people with HIV compared with people without HIV. And again, sudden cardiac death, those are the types that tend to be really um, result from the higher risk arrhythmias like ventricular, ventricular arrhythmias. So I'm going to talk just for a few minutes now about a little bit more in depth about the mechanism. Why might this be happening in HIV? Um, and really to think about this at its core, we have to think about inflammation and heart disease. Um, I'm not going to belabor it too much on this slide, but the bottom line is both myeloid inflammation, generally thinking monocyte macrophage related inflammation, but also lymphoid inflammation, um, they're essential, they're, they're implicated essentially in inflammation and cardiovascular disease in all the different manifestations of cardiovascular disease I've discussed. And we also know that inflammation in the setting of other comorbidities can lead to a particularly deleterious cycle where they both reinforce each other and you get this hyperinflammation. So this slide, I'm going to stay on for a couple minutes because it's a little bit complicated, but I want to walk us through it. And the idea here is that what is inflammation in heart disease, right? And, and a lot of times when we talk about inflammation, it ends up being really hand-wavy and we say, oh, their CRP is high or some nonspecific measurement of inflammation is high. But I find that to be somewhat interesting, but ultimately not that helpful because you're not really getting at the mechanism and the potential targets that, that may be of interest. Um, so really what happens is first you start with antigens and antigen-like triggers, right? Antigen being something that causes an immune response. Obviously, a lot of us think of infection, you know, infectious epitopes as antigens. That's, generally speaking, you know, one of the most common ones we talk about. But there's also non-infectious antigens or neoantigens, like 
LDL cholesterol and uh, the ApoB particle it carries on. So essentially what happens is if you have more of this antigen or neoantigen circulating, but particularly if it's lodging in one of your, uh, in your arteries or in your tissues somewhere, your body's gonna say, I need to mount an immune response to this unusual thing that I'm seeing, this, this LDL epitope. So what happens is you have an immune response to it, and it's that, it, it's the immune response to this antigen that really ultimately de determines how you're gonna be activated, either in a hyperinflammatory way or potentially in a more inflammation-resolving way. And that ultimately determines more of a self-tolerant phenotype versus an autoimmune, persistent, unresolving, inflammatory phenotype. And really, the balance and timing of this is critical. If you're clearing this material properly, if you're not leading to hyperinflammation, then you're probably not gonna have more inflammation at your end organs, like your heart and arteries, leading to, you know, and so you're gonna be protected from these, uh, these harmful outcomes. Um, however, unfortunately, particularly common in HIV, there's the possibility of sustained inflammation, where you sort of have a loss of this self-tolerance, and you just have this amplified loop of auto-reactivity and auto-inflammation, where you're ultimately biased towards a persistent inflammatory response, and your cholesterol, the lining of your arteries, are just gonna be persistently more inflamed. And so the question then is, how does immune progression in HIV affect this bias between persistent inflammation and its resolution? This is a paper I, I still love reading by Steve Deeks, um, just discussing inflammation in HIV. And there's a few key things that we know. We, we know there is this fundamental, with obviously the initial CD4 decline, and in many cases a CD8 positive T cell expansion, as well as an incomplete CD4 recovery even on ART, there's a bias away from a regulatory, an immune regulatory phenotype, and towards this more persistent inflammatory phenotype. And this persists even after viral load is suppressed. And there's also, as you know, the reservoir in tissues that remains this antigenic trigger. So there's, you know, the next intermediate step following that is an increase in both lymphoid and myeloid in inflammation, as seen by a T cell, inflammatory activated phenotype, as well as monocyte activation. But also, you know, arteries and the lining of the arteries being a little bit more on fire, a little bit more inflamed as a nidus for plaque growth, plaque instability, and ultimately clotting. And the question is, does inflammation matter in people with HIV? And the answer to that is certainly yes. So this is from a large study where they looked at people with higher versus lower circulating inflammatory markers. And essentially, as you can see, uh, th so this is a survival curve, the, the lower the worst, the lower the worst survival. And so the highest quartile of inflammation in the dotted lines, um, the highest quartile of all these different inflammatory markers, several of which are monocyte-focused inflammatory markers, um, the lower the survival. So the higher the inflammation, both lymphoid and myeloid, the lower the survival. Now, I know I talked about these inflammatory responses, but again, they don't occur in a vacuum. They occur in the setting of other niduses, right? And other, other risk factors that anyone has, but are particularly common among people with HIV. So we know smoking. We talked about that earlier. Super common among people with HIV. More than twofold uh, more common than, than people without HIV. Um, dyslipidemia. There is the dyslipidemia in HIV is complex. I'm not gonna go into it in too much detail here because that's an entire different talk. And uh, Roger talked about it earlier a bit as well. But there can be some dyslipidemia due to the virus, 
but also some ART-related dyslipidemia, which does vary a bit depending on the class and perhaps depending on the specific drug. There's also metabolic dysregulation, and by that, I mean impaired fat distribution, increased visceral adiposity, which again is a particularly inflammatory fat phenotype. So what's the role of ART? Um, this is obviously something we'll probably discuss quite a bit in the Q&A. Two key points. Obviously, ART is better than no ART. We know that for HIV management, but it's also true for cardiovascular diseases, but there's also some nuance. So we know from the SMART trial, actually, that being on continuous ART versus, um, versus interrupted ART, lower risk of MI, myocardial infarction, heart attack, right? So it's, it's not only better for HIV control, clearly better for reducing MI risk. But we also know antiretrovirals are not all created equal with respect to to cardiovascular risk. And this, you know, th this, I, I included a bunch of references here so that you can dive more deeply into them when you want because it's, um, as, as we all kind of alluded to on the panel earlier, when you're talking about one antiretroviral drug versus another or one regimen versus another, there's always sacrifices involved. And, and there's, there's um, you know, one may have more weight gain, one, more ha one may have higher risk of MI, potentially. One may have higher risk of renal disease. So it, it's important to not just think, okay, this drug does this, but how does it actually compare to the potential alternative? So for protease inhibitors, there was an early concern about class effect for MI risk, but that's changed a bit, and um, the data are pretty variable. And I should say, for most of these studies, they're observational ones, right? So, so they're somewhat confounded on why was a person put on a particular drug, why were they changed from one drug to another, et cetera. Um, for NRTIs, there's also quite a bit of um, quite a bit of diversity in the potential cardiovascular effects. Some of the earlier version ones, mitochondrial toxicity, was a bigger concern, particularly with respect to myopathy and neuropathy. Um, and then there's the TDF versus TAF question, and we can talk about that a bit more. We know TAF in general somewhat increased cholesterol, and there is weight gain going from TDF to TAF, but the actual effects on cardiovascular diseases, we don't know. And then a back of ear. Lots of, lots of noise, some of it is probably real, possibly, uh, you know what, I, 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 it's, it's, uh, the truth is it's really hard to say. I, it's about half of the studies, perhaps slightly more than half of the studies, um, have shown an elevated cardiovascular risk, but a number of studies, particularly ones done recently, have not replicated that increased cardiovascular risk. They've used different time horizons. They've been almost entirely observational, which lead to a bunch of confounding. So that's why, you know, if I'm speaking with Susan or another HIV provider and they say, I, I have a patient on a back of ear, they're at, you know, modest cardiovascular risk, should I switch them? The answer is not a blanket no. The answer is what's the alternative um, and, uh, and what are the other risks of the alternative therapy? Again, if it's a recent MI, if it's a very high risk, just because even if it's neutral to slightly increased risk for MI compared with other antiretrovirals, I, it's probably safest to, in those very high-risk scenarios, have the person on an alternative if, if, a, if a valid one exists to a back of ear. But again, not a blanket recommendation against the back of ear. And then integrase inhibitors. Weight gain, but what does it do for cardiovascular disease? How does that compare to alternatives? A lot to be, to be discussed. This slide, uh, I initially sent it to, to Donna and the IAS team, and they basically told me TLDR, and, and I think that's true. Too long, didn't read, which is uh, HIV and heart failure. 
It's very long, very complicated. Um, again, heart failure as a final common pathway of so many manifestations of cardiovascular disease, it's really hard to say, here's a singular or here's a couple of very specific reasons why people with HIV have increased risk for heart failure. A lot needs to be studied there. And also just understanding what are the most common etiologies of heart failure among people with HIV is going to be absolutely critical. So I wanted to leave the last 10 minutes or so about to, to discuss you know, what, what I think is probably the lowest hanging fruit for everyone here, which is what do we do about it? How do we prevent and treat cardiovascular disease among people with HIV? Or how do we think we can prevent and treat it in the setting of incomplete data? So let's go ahead and do this uh, audience response question. So when assessing cardiovascular risk for patients with HIV, uh, which of the following strategies do you most commonly use? Uh, Framingham risk score, pooled cohort equations, or a, which are called the ACC-AHA uh, ASCVD risk estimator, the DAD, HIV-specific risk, risk equations, my clinical judgment, or none. I don't really do a quantitative assessment of cardiovascular risk. Great song. Thank you. This is a good one. All right, let's see what we got. Okay. Yeah, I think that's the most common. It's the most common in primary care as well. It's the most common in cardiovascular care. I would say it's, um, this is a risk estimation tool that's derived from a more diverse population, generally speaking, than the Framingham risk equations and then the DAD risk equations. So that's what I use too, in general, as a baseline. And I'll get into this in a little more detail. So this is kind of a theoretical slide, but I think it's really important to frame the way we talk about cardiovascular risk, not just with each other, not in an esoteric way, but in a very real way with our patients. Um, and this is actually extremely relevant to the reprieve data. So absolute risk is very important. And, and the idea is, the general principle here is that the higher someone's absolute risk for cardiovascular events, the higher their potential absolute benefit from cardiovascular disease-reducing uh, therapies. So I, I say a not-so-very-theoretical not example is, let's take two people, two 55-year-olds. Let's say one has a calculated risk of MI of 3% over a specific time horizon. Let's call it the next 10 years. And let's say we've got another person, person B, who's got a 30% risk of MI in the next 10 years. Let's say we've got a theoretical medication, um, perhaps a statin that reduces, that is known across many populations to reduce risk of heart attack and stroke, in this case, let's say, by about a third. One person, so person A, they have a 3% absolute risk, so let's say we're reducing their risk of heart attack and stroke over the next 10 years by a third. It, that's in relative terms. The, the third risk reduction is in relative terms. So what you're doing is you're taking that person's risk of a heart attack or stroke and moving it from 3% to 2%, which, you can argue how trivial or non-trivial that is, but really what you're saying is there's a one in 100 chance that by giving this person this medication of the next 10 years, you're gonna prevent a heart attack. Now you take person B who's got a 30% risk for heart attack and stroke in the next 10 years, and you take the same theoretical medication that reduces relative risk by about a third, but that's reducing their risk by 10%, 30% down to 20%. That means there's a 10% absolute risk reduction or a one in 10 chance by giving this fairly well tolerated theoretical medication. 
um, a one in 10 chance that you're reducing their myocardial infarction risk. And why does this matter? Is it, it's really the balance. So let's say there's a 5% risk of non-trivial side effects that really matter to the patient. If you know they're gonna reduce their risk of heart attack and stroke by 10% in the next 10 years, pretty easy to justify and offset that 5% or so absolute risk for, for side effects. If your absolute risk reduction is only about 1%, it's a little bit tougher to justify, or at the very least, it's a detailed conversation about how important is the thing that you're benefiting from, meaning not having a heart attack, versus how important are the potential side effects. Um, of the drug. And so this is where there is some science to this, but it's also a lot of art and understanding the individual level preferences. Um, why this matters, okay? So that was theoretical, now let's be actual. We know statin therapy in the general population reduces risk for heart attack and stroke by about 20 to 25%. Again, this is a relative risk reduction. This is not absolute, meaning someone comes in with a 10% risk. You know by starting them on a statin, on average, you'll probably bring their risk down from about 10% to about 7 or 8%, right? Um, but now we also have some data in HIV that there may be a little bit stronger than anticipated of an effect, as we know from the Reprieve study where they used patavastatin, which, let me say, it's a moderate intensity statin. It's not a high intensity statin. We have stronger statins, but despite that, it produced about a, it produced about a 35% relative risk reduction. So perhaps the benefit of Statins, at least in this case, patavastatin, remains to be seen if it's a class effect. Although if it follows many other statin trials, you'd expect there is probably some class effect to it. Um, anyways, it's possible that statins are even more beneficial among people with HIV than you would expect for the equivalent um, general population group. So a few things we know. Cardiovascular risk assessment. You know, when we're gonna go actually apply these to our patients. How do they do in people with HIV? Not too well. Um, this is a graph, uh, a nice study by Jeannie Triant, and what they did is they looked at across deciles of predicted and actual risk. Um, they looked at predicted risk versus observed risk. Predicted risk is in blue, observed risk is in red. So again, here you see pretty consistently people with HIV have about one and a half to twofold higher than higher actual risks for cardiovascular disease than what would be predicted by our traditional risk estimators. It's probably not that surprising, given what we've seen for the myocardial infarction data, right, where people with HIV, again, have a one-and-a-half to two-fold higher risk. So what do we do about this in the interim? Um, you know, it's, uh, this, is, this is a slide. I'm not going to have time to go through it in detail. I really just wanted to highlight it for you, because it's a scientific statement that um, several of us put together, um, cardiologists, but also infectious disease specialists, um, patients were involved as well, um, and really just focusing on how can we, in the absence of complete data, understand and assess cardiovascular risk in people with HIV. And the general idea is you look for, so first of all, just getting a general assessment of risk is important, but then secondarily, you look for the things that we know increase cardiovascular risk among people with HIV. Those are histories of prolonged viremia, impaired CD4 recovery, right? So low current or nadir CD4 positive T cell count, um, treatment failure or non-adherence, which often goes along with those. Um, but then some other, uh, some other factors, hepatitis C co-infection associated with about a one and a half to two-fold higher risk of, uh, of cardiovascular events among people with HIV, but also metabolic syndrome, 
dyslipidemia, um, excess visceral adiposity. We know those, those are things that can take whatever the ASCVD risk estimator spits out and for your individual patient who has HIV, make their risk one and a half to twofold higher, right? Whereas the person who gets on therapy immediately never, you know, doesn't have sustained viremia, doesn't have much of a CD4 positive, CD4 drop, they are less likely to have this persistent shift towards a hyperinflammatory milieu. Um, so, you know, instead of having a 1.5 to twofold higher cardiovascular risk, for those individuals, it's probably closer to a, you know, 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 fold higher risk. So anyways, you think about these factors and you use that to say, okay, my baseline is this ASCVD risk estimator. I see a 10% risk, but there's these other HIV-related risk-enhancing factors. So actually, this patient's 10-year risk of heart attack and stroke is probably about 15 to 20%. And, and, and that is how, you know, once you have that, you know the numbers aren't perfect, but it's a reasonable baseline, and that can inform your risk-benefit calculus and your discussion. Um, and how might the reprieve data affect this? I'm gonna save a lot of that for our discussion, but I think the bottom line is probably somewhat more than anticipated benefit for statins in people with HIV. Side effect profile sounds like it's similar. We have to wait for the publication and look into that in more detail. So maybe you've got a little bit lower threshold to initiate statins. Um, but the other thing, and I think this, this came from Mike's case earlier, what's challenging but is absolutely critical is lifestyle optimization. We can wax poetic about all these new trial data and it's marginally, marginally better effectiveness for statins among people with HIV. But if we're not taking care of smoking, if we're not taking care of meth use, then all of these other things we're discussing are marginal in comparison to these core lifestyle, uh, lifestyle and behavioral factors. So just for these last couple minutes, I'm gonna talk about a couple other things that we have way less guidance on. One is antiplatelet therapy. Aspirin may not work as well in people with HIV as in people without HIV. The me potential mechanisms why are purely theoretical at this point. We don't really know. Uh, clopidogrel um, may be a little bit better at reducing platelet activation, but we don't use clopidogrel for primary prevention of heart disease in the general population. And I think it's, you know, we're a long way from knowing whether or not that's actually going to be a viable net clinical benefit move in, the, uh, in, in people with HIV. So again, we really don't know much in terms of primary prevention. For secondary prevention, that's after MI. If you're, if you're putting someone on single antiplatelet therapy, meaning uh, they've completed, they got their stent, they completed three, six, 12 months of both aspirin and clopidogrel, I would generally probably put them on clopidogrel rather than aspirin for the duration thereafter. I, in fact, do that in general. Um, in my patients who don't have HIV, and I think particularly given some of the emerging mechanistic data in HIV, I think that seems like a, a reasonable approach. And then just these last couple slides, what about inflammation reduction? Um, we know even less here. So in the general population, IL-1 beta antagonism, which is a fairly, it's both broad and targeted. And let me say that to say, it's broadly looking at inflammation. It's not necessarily looking at a specific antigenic or immune cell driver of inflammation, um, but it's, uh, it is specifically targeting the inflammasome. Um, and what that found in the general population, modest reduction in cardiovascular event risk in a really high risk population, 
but they'd increase the fatal infection risk. So it actually didn't even get FDA approved in the general population, despite being a positive trial. So I think, you know, if we're going to talk about inflammation reduction in HIV um, in the future, I think it's to be determined what the risk-benefit calculus is, and I think really what we're going to need is more precise, refined targets um, where the, the, the juice will be worth the squeeze or the, the reduction in adverse events will be worth the, uh, or the reduction, in, uh, the reduction in primary endpoints, the reduction in MI will be worth the potential increase in, in adverse events. Last couple slides here, heart failure and sudden death, we don't know. Studies are still ongoing to understand the pathogenesis here. We need to understand the heterogeneity. We need to understand the prevalence. We need to understand what the most common etiologies of heart failure and sudden death are among people with HIV. And in the meantime, just knowing that there's an elevated risk, that can still be useful as it can inform us if our patients come in short of breath with lower extremity edema, it just keeps the light bulb on in our head to say, hey, we should probably have a higher index of suspicion, a lower threshold to start thinking about heart failure. And just a last slide here is other blind spots, and this is a big blind spot. So much of what we know about HIV-associated cardiovascular disease is from the US and Europe, predominantly male cohorts as well. Um, and so these findings may differ dramatically in other contexts. And, and I think a, a perfect example is someone, who's at HIV, someone who had perinatally acquired HIV. <laughs> yes, that's my name. Um, so, someone who had uh, perinatally acquired HIV and has had some of these chronic HIV-associated changes really brewing since birth versus someone who acquired HIV at, at age 40 or age 50, what are the long-term immunologic consequences? What does that mean for inflammation? What does that mean for what the response is to these various other comorbidities is going to be? So here's the conclusions. Bottom lines. People with HIV have higher risks for various types of heart disease. Inflammation is important. Statins may be particularly affected, effective in people with HIV. Uh, still waiting for the major publication from that. But does this mean we should have a lower threshold to consider statin therapy in people with HIV? Maybe, probably. But, but also, I don't think it's going to be a blanket recommendation. And then we still don't know how to prevent or treat the other cardiovascular manifestations. So I think we've still got about 10 or 12 minutes for questions, and I, I look forward to them. Thank you. I may stand during questions if that's okay, because I've been sitting all day otherwise. And... I think that's a good idea. But, uh... And I'll have my name tag. Cool. All right. So thank you for a tour de force of cardiovascular disease in people with HIV. And we'll start in with our Slido questions. And I'm going to start last and or earliest and go to most recent. So. What's the risk of MI for calcified versus soft or vulnerable plaque? Yeah, that's a good question and a fun one. It's higher for soft, uh, for soft plaque. The reality is it's not binary. M most people who have plaque have both. Um, but we generally know lipid-rich, inflammatory, softer plaque is higher risk. And again, that's, that's why we talked through the mechanism slide, too, which is it's really plaque disruption, plaque instability that ultimately drives a lot of these events. Um, and the more calcified plaque is, although it's you know, hardened in a sense, and it can be somewhat stenotic, meaning flow limiting, it tends to be a little bit more bone-like and not the type that's going to be hyper-inflammatory. OK, how would you, um, 
How does persistent inflammation work in, so I guess the question is about slowly progressive HIV, but I think what we mean is elite non-progressors maybe who still have measurable inflammation and how does that translate to um, persistent inflammation in people with more advanced HIV? Yeah, um, so for, for translating, it's a really good question. So for translating into persistent inflammation, you still have some immunologic changes, you still have a, a reservoir, and, and so you still have some degree of that chronic immune response to it. But also importantly, we, we have data, um, and this a lot of the data is from Priscilla Shu at UCSF, who's, who's had an elite controller cohort that she's investigated it. Um, they have more subclinical atherosclerosis than, than um, people without HIV, the elite controllers do. And it's such a small population that we don't have great outcome data. We can't say, oh yeah, MI risk is double or is 1.2x among elite controllers. There's just, the N is way too small. Um, but, but there is more arterial disease. Uh, next question, do you think um, the weight gain associated with antiretroviral therapy will end up being a cardiovascular disease risk factor or is this non-clinical? Oh, I can't answer that question properly. Um, <laughs> you know why? Because the weight gain depends. It depends on the type of weight gain. We we know in the general population, BMI is a lousy measure. Um, visceral adiposity is probably more meaningful because that's the type that tends to be pretty inflammatory. Um, but you can have wasting syndromes that end up being net harmful from a from a lipid standpoint as well. Um, even if your BMI and weight go down. Um, it really depends on the mechanism of weight gain. I would say if it's metabolically unhealthy weight, weight that is related to visceral adiposity increase, triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, HDL decrease, those, I would imagine, will, be, will lead to higher cardiovascular risk. But again, it's always what's the alternative? Is the alternative, if the alternative is poor control of HIV, that's obviously a worse alternative. But if the alternative is another therapy that leads to renal disease or leads to MI risk, these, these, these things all need to be considered, which is another reason why I happily defer to my HIV colleagues on what, <laughs> which specific regimen is ultimately chosen. Great. Um, you can, these are two questions, but I'm going to combine them because I think you can, they pertain to the same topic. And so considering risk factors for, in people with HIV with, for atherosclerotic cardiac events, would you also consider constant stress due to factors like living in poverty, discrimination, homelessness, and some of those other sort of socio-behavioral factors, and also, do you think HIV should be added to the ASCBD risk score? Two great questions. Uh, the, the answer to the first is, of course. Um, it's harder to measure. It's, it's hard to quantify that. It's hard to quantify the stress-associated risk, but, but of course. Um, and, and I mean, th there are real mechanisms for that, right? It's sympathetic and adrenergic hyperactivation and stimulation, which can lead to a number of things. Um, including, um, including, you know, hypertension. So it can have hemodynamic effects that, that disrupt the arterial lining and make that higher risk. It can lead to arrhythmia. Um, adrenergic, you know, hyperstimuli are often in, the, an acute trigger for arrhythmias. So, so absolutely. And the second question, um, should HIV be added to the ASCVD risk estimator? You know, we kind of tried, and I have to say, in the general population, so in the, in the general, American Heart Association guidelines for cardiovascular prevention, it is now considered a cardiovascular disease risk enhancer. 
Um, the reality is it would be made up if we were to say, oh, it's a 2x or 1.3x higher risk. So, so we really have to be granular about it in terms of thinking about what are the HIV-associated risk enhancers for this particular individual, and does that mean they're actually at a you know, substantially higher than predicted risk or kind of more modest? And another question that comes in on a card, given that pitavastatin is not clinically available in many settings, how do you advise people with HIV related to the implementation of the reprieve results? What are the other choices in your clinical decision? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think, long story short, I, I think that's, I think it's fine. I, I think the, the nice part about patavastatin, of course, is now we have a major trial evidence about patavastatin specifically, and it has such, you know, it, it's uh, just based on its pharmacology, its side effect profile is so low. But the reality is, Statin side effects, it's, people have statin side effects, they're real, but it is very rare to have a hospital, a serious hospitalized adverse effect of a statin. Um, so that helps inform my decision making. So what I do in clinic, I have a general cardiology clinic, but about a third of my, the patients I see have HIV. Um, and I often, so the two high intensity statins are resuvastatin, the, the two main ones in use are resuvastatin and atorvastatin. There is another simvastatin um, that the highest dose is considered high intensity, but it has uh, a pretty significant drug-drug interaction potential because it's, it's really heavily metabolized by the CYP3A4 system. So it's rarely used in general now, and particularly in HIV, I avoid simvastatin entirely. Um, I most commonly use rosuvastatin or atorvastatin, and those are generics of, Donna, can I say the, can I say the, drugs that they're generic for, because that might help with people. Yeah. So, I mean, rosuvastatin is generic Crestor, atorvastatin is generic Lipitor, because people may have heard of, of those. Um, the highest dose for each, the highest dose for rosuvastatin is 40 milligrams, for, for atorvastatin is 80 milligrams. I tend to use rosuvastatin as my first line, because it's more water-soluble than atorvastatin, and it's a little bit less heavily metabolized by CYP3A4. It's a little more um, cyp 2 Y9? I, I'm 2C9. 2C9. Thank you. I need, I need, yeah. Uh, anyways, so, um, and where do I start? I'd say start low, go slow, even though that's grammatically incorrect. It's um, because the, the highest dose of rosuvastatin is 40 milligrams. Um, even at 5 milligrams or 10 milligrams, you can see a pretty substantial 30 to 40% LDL lowering. Um, and as people tolerate it, if they're LDL, if you want to continue pushing it lower, which we do know now on statins or on other, you know, on, on, uh, certainly on statins, the lower you get someone's LDL on treatment, the lower, the linearly lower their risk for cardiovascular disease. So you can continue to push it. I would say on a booster, so on cobicistat, I wouldn't go above rosuvastatin 20 milligrams because that's the equivalent of rosuvastatin 40 milligrams at least, uh, given the boosting. Um, but, but yeah, I would say my first choice is rosuvastatin. Uh, pravastatin is sometimes used as kind of a weaker statin that also has a pretty benign side effect profile, though. Um, so, so really those three, rosuvastatin, atorvastatin, pravastatin, prim primarily rosuvastatin and playing around with doses, though. Great. Thank you. I think that's very helpful because I think people may not want to pay the price that the patatastatin. Yeah, and, and the others are generic, so I think yeah. that's reasonable. So these are a couple of... Um, uniquely patient-oriented questions. There are some people with HIV who come in on statins who are less than 40 years old, no family history, LDL is not greater than 190, 
What should we do with those people? Yeah, this is the question. So this is, this is where it's art, not science. Um, and I know that that sounds dismissive, but it's the truth. Um, because our best way to quantify risk, just based on available data, based on what's out there, it, it's these 10-year risk estimates. But the reality is we do know also from some, some legacy trials of statins that there is sustained benefit for having a substantial reduction in LDL cholesterol over you know, a time period. It's, if I'm on a statin today and for the next five years, there's a reasonable chance I'll still be deriving benefit 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road. Um, so in terms of absolute risk reduction, if you've got a 40-year-old or younger, their absolute risk for ASCVD as calculated is going to be low because they are young. And age is one of the primary contributors to the ASCVD risk estimator. So this is where it's a discussion. And, and the reality is, I, would I bring this up with all of the patients referred to me with HIV, or many of them, especially if their cholesterol is you know, not above 190, but let's say maybe their LDL is 120, 140, they've got some family history. I think it's a discussion, um, which is to say, look, we have these data. We know that it will probably reduce cardiovascular risk. Are you gonna see a benefit from this in the next 10 years? You know, maybe there's a one in 200 chance that we're actually preventing a heart attack in the next 10 years for you, but we probably are preventing plaque accumulation, which probably will contribute to reducing your risk for heart attack and stroke, you know, in the long term. But, it, but it's not a guarantee. On the flip side, what are the side effects? How bad are they? Generally speaking, muscle cramps, um, reversible, uh, about 5% or lower of the population have true statin-related muscle cramps. Um, there have been a lot, there's been a lot published on theoretical neurological questions, but whenever statins have been, um, whenever they've been rigorously tested against placebo and they've actually used rigorous neurocognitive testing, there aren't really neurocognitive harms of statins and there's some theoretical benefit in terms of preventing plaque buildup. So it's really to say, hey, you may benefit I think there's a chance you'll benefit. The magnitude of benefit in the near term is probably gonna be modest, but it might be higher. Um, but you're gonna be on an extra pill and there are some real side effects. The good part is the side effects are reversible. You stop the statin, almost always the side effects go away. So it really just depends on tolerance of pill burden, polypharmacy, mixed with the desire to prevent something that could be a problem many years down the road. And uh, just the last 20 seconds. Um, so the cardiovascular disease risk calculator says it should only be applied between the ages of 40 and 59. So what do you do for the people over 60? It, it should be above 59, I think. I think it's, it, I think it goes to, it go, but in general, what do you do? So I mean, what do you do for patients who are outside of the range? Honestly, I just plug in the age that's closest that the calculator will allow, because okay. it, it's not perfect. Um, Got it. But yeah, a 35-year-old, right. I'll plug in his 40. That's all we need to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you very much Thanks. for a wonderful tour de force.